Barbara and I have thoroughly enjoyed being with you as a congregation. I'm guessing there's a few extra ones here this morning. I don't know where you all come from, but it's been a, a just a, a challenging week. It's been a busy week, a full week, but a blessed week as well. Um, I'd like to share what was kind of the seedbed for this this whole subject. Um, back in, I think it was 2013, if I remember right, um, I was asked to share the Faith Builders Colloquy on Nonconformity in a Cross-Cultural Context. And so that was kind of the initial um, wrestling to understand how our nonconformity, separation, and so forth should fit into lifestyle as, as Christians, wrestling with that. Well, that kind of morphed into uh, eight sessions at the Minister's Week back um, um, a couple of years ago. I forget which year it was. And um, uh, that's when Brother James and Brother Laverne were there. And... It was because of that that you got this, I guess. Um, and, um, and then the next year at the Asian Bible School, it again morphed into about 13 sessions. So um, we're trying to condense some of the main things down to the, um, the five sessions that we have here with you. But I did want to, to share with you some of the things that, that were there in that initial um, attempt to understand this whole thing of nonconformity, and particularly in a cross-cultural setting. In March of 2010, we were in the Asian Bible School. This was previous to the other one I'm talking about, where we had all these sessions um, on, on um, the beauty of holiness. We were speaking that year about the Christian family. And, and so... There were 19 students there, I think from about nine different countries that uh, were attending. And our class in Christian Family, we were discussing things about uh, family planning and divorce and remarriage, women's appearance, and, and some of these different things. And several Korean ladies that were attending that session, or those sessions, suggested that these views on... Uh, feminine appearance and veiling and stay-at-home mothering and family planning and all those kind of related subjects could work in American culture, but they can't work in Asian culture. That was their assumption. And I assured the class that you know, following these principles in America was as, as much, if not more, counter-cultural than it is in Asia. Um, and they expressed some uncertainty until Pastor Giet got up. He was one of the, um, the students that year. He got up and he, he spoke up and, and affirmed that the biblical practices of Christianity will set Christians apart from their host culture in any part of the world. It doesn't matter where you're at. And this is a truth that I'd like to kind of underscore this morning. Now, I will probably be reading parts of this and I'm not really um, used to reading sermons, and so and that can be kind of boring too. So please stay awake. Um, I will try to to um, 
read it because I don't want to miss some of the things that, that are, uh, I think, very important. I have to make this disclaimer, too, before I get into the subject. Most of my experience in the past 10 years has been working with conservative Anabaptist young people in an Asian setting. Um, the illustrations and the stories primarily are taken from that particular context. And um, this is where at least some of my ongoing um, conviction is, is developing. I think that in many cases, the current generation of young Anabaptists question what they've been traditionally, what we've traditionally called nonconformity. Because um, many of us, many of them, would conform to a list of guidelines and see themselves as, you know, good conservative Protestants. Uh, and the differences in lifestyle and, and practice are seen as rather cosmetic, outward rather than connected to the core change of values that comes through regeneration. They don't particularly see themselves as being cross-cultural in America. They're surrounded primarily by their, their own conservative subculture and unengaged in many situations with the fallen world around them. And so the list of guidelines that churches give to them puts kind of shoe leather to their nonconformity as it relates to our host culture here in the West. But the seclusiveness of nonconformed of the nonconformed prevents their engagement with the antagonistic culture that we live in. There is an accompanying loss of meaning to the concept of being a holy nation, a peculiar people who are separated unto God, because our associations are, are, are so intertwined with, with each other. So before we get to that, let's, uh, let's again just stand together and um, read this scripture from Psalms that talks about how beautiful this separation is. <clears throat> and we'll follow that with our song that we sung the other evenings. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods and the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all ye the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Oh, worship the Lord. 
beauty of holiness, in the beauty of holiness, beauty of holiness. Christian communities relating to each other in, in our churches or families and subgroup, many times it's we don't really run into a lot of conflict with um, around us. And so our associations in family groups, our attendance at school, our recreational activities, church participation, even our employment tend to be kind of platonic, at least, agreement with, um, with the doctrines and lifestyle to which we personally ascribe. And I, I'm concerned that this could significantly hinder the development of personal inner conviction about the guidelines to which we're conforming. And I think that's where we need to, to um, shore up, <laughs> understand the beauty of holiness from within. We seem to know all the right answers. We don't see any value in them. We, we don't know their significance. Answers have never been tested. I concur with what Walter Hendrick 
questions in his book, The Light That Never Dies, when he asks, and I am quoting, how do you help them embrace what is true when they don't have a clue as to why that truth is important? It is not that they are necessarily opposed to the truth, but how do they believe in something that has yet to matter one way or another in their life? They don't know that they don't know. End of quote. When a, a biblical subculture fails to engage with the fallen culture around it, the convictions that it holds are seldom tested. And without that testing, there's an accompanying, accompanying weakening of conviction. And that weakened conviction is then shorn up with sometimes with inadequate and irrelevant explanations. And those inadequate answers fail to convince young people who have been enthralled many times by dynamic yet compromised evangelical writers and speakers a lot of exposure to a group of peers who have also lived with these untested practices. If that persists for a generation or two, the strength of nonconformity issues is weakened and even lost. I would like to suggest that as participants in a theology and a practice of Anabaptism, we are just as cross-cultural in America as we are in any country in the world. When the biblical expressions of nonconformity are lived in the context of an antagonistic community, rather than primarily with like-minded people, the beauty of being separated unto God will emerge in any culture, in every culture. And may I add, especially in America. If we relegate our nonconformity to of significant practices rather than embracing the radical lifestyle of Jesus and his teaching in whatever setting we live, we will continue to lose the next generation. It may be hard to admit, but if we've chosen in the past to change churches because we wanted more, in quotes, liberty, and less nonconformity than the church of our younger years, how convincing will we be when our children follow suit to leave our churches for the same reason? A significant portion of the membership of most of our churches is made up of those who come from what we would consider a more conservative backgrounds. Whether right or wrong, they are considered the nonconformity of their present church to, or of their previous church to be what am I doing wrong? Put it in my pocket. Okay. We're losing the sound there. <clears throat> See if that works. Okay. Um, whether right or wrong, they consider the, the nonconformity of their previous church to have been irrelevant. And this is a problem that many parents are facing today as their children feel the same way about the things that they're asking of their, of their children. The next generation is going to be disenchanted with our understanding of being nonconformed unless it's relevant to engaging not only an antagonistic world but the compromised positions of evangelical churches as well. The practical expressions of being separate unto God will always be dynamic. 
A static statement of practice will eventually become irrelevant. Our forefathers wrestled with the impact of the automobile on family life. Today, we wrestle with the impact of the Internet on family life. And we can hardly imagine the challenges that the next generation will face in relation to family life and Christian life. As time goes on, the strength of what one generation may have had as a valid application of the church, in the church weakens. And it's, if it's not transmitted convincingly, or the issues have changed so that they're significantly different, then that former standard has a sense of redundancy. And it'll be lost. Unfortunately, the perceived loss of meaningful contemporary conviction tempts many to defect to apostate evangelical churches. Then they ascribe what they had been taught in the past as legalism. It's my conviction that we have floundered by emphasizing nonconformity to a world with almost no discussion about the beauty of holiness. And that's what we've been talking about this, this week. Or the impact of a transformed life. When being nonconform is accented to the neglect of that energizing source for that separation, the nonconformity becomes dead legalism. And it has little more appeal than retaining an antiquated culture with the accompanying awkwardness of kind of being like living specimens of a past culture to tourists as they drive through our communities. We must move from a fixation to being different to a passion to be transformed. Our difference with the world will then spring vividly out of our conformity with Christ. While there may be some value in disallowing an activity or an appearance simply because the world does it, that argument alone will be relatively unconvincing. It also tends to throw us into the opposite ditch by allowing the world to determine our actions inversely. And I made this statement earlier. I'm just going to say it again. George McDermott says in his, his book, if I had to summarize in one statement what distinguishes true from false spirituality, it would be this. The unregenerate never see the beauty of holiness. Holiness is not an austere, sterile, bleached condition of the soul. Holiness was the atmosphere of Eden, the most untainted beauty that this world has ever known. Heaven is not only the holiest realm in existence, it's also the most beautiful place in existence. The holiest place in all God's kingdom is described in, in Revelation, where the light of, of Jesus glistens off of the simmering surfaces of jasper, sardine, gold, crystal, with an emerald rainbow over the head of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Though that beauty may have been somewhat aesthetic in nature, its dynamic source is the life of the one that's on the throne and that now lives in you and I as believers. We can hardly wrap our powers of imagination around the holiness and beauty of heaven. Every attempt 
to draw the next generation of Anabaptists to nonconformity must be married to the conviction that holiness is beautiful. Most theological venues of, of Western Christianity may applaud various expressions of holiness which separate the believer's lifestyle from that of unbelievers. But the problem is deeper in most of our uh, evangelicalism in America today. In their theologies, the holiness of Christ is forensic. It's something that's applied to your belie the believer's account on the record books of heaven. And so your account in heaven has been, been cleansed and uh, there's nothing on it. And praise God for that truth. That's not, I don't want in any way undermine that, that truth. It's, it's a very powerful and, and accurate truth. But the problem is that in many of our theological brothers in some of these other theologies, it has nothing to do with the actual condition of the believer's heart. It's only something that happens up there. And you're covered, you've got a robe of righteousness, or, or God looks through glasses, or however they express it. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, that that beauty is in here. It belongs in here, and that's where it's going to live itself out in day-by-day -day life. If it only happens up there and denies the intrinsic transformation of the believer's heart as directly connected to that change, and it only happens in the record books of heaven, then the dual transformation of regeneration is dichotomized, and the expressions of holiness become arbitrary and secondary. When inseparably linked, when those two are put together, what happens in heaven and what happens in your heart, they are foundational and dynamic to Christian life and experience. And living a holy life, uh, separate unto Christ from the world's self-centered expressions, becomes a joy-filled anticipation of the believer. He is a new man in Christ. Old things have passed away before all things. All things have become new. To grasp the importance of holiness, we need to understand its, its uniqueness. <clears throat> Peter takes us to the compelling source when he says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. You know, anything that is holy is set apart from the mundane. It's in a category all by itself. God is holy, and he's distinctly outside of every other form of, of being. It's a title that's most often used for God in the, in the scripture. It's the, he's a holy God, unconnected with any other gods, above every other gods, in a whole different genetic background than the other gods. There's no connection. The Bible is called the Holy Bible because it transcends, as we mentioned the other evening, every other writing as inerrant and infallible. Marriage is called holy matrimony because it places our spouse in a uniquely different relationship to us than any other human being on the face of the earth. It's holy, set apart, different than every other person. 
the believer becomes a part of a delightful, beautiful people that contrasts all other people groups like day contrasts night. And the moral effect of that holy ethnic group to which you belong is that they manifest to the world that God is holy. That's what they show. Their lives, their words, their passions suggest that holiness exists in a divine and absolute sense that penetrates through his people to the believer, through the believer to the world around. In a world that's racked with with heinous unholiness, the holiness of a believer catches the attention of a skeptical, sneering world with a beauty for which they have no explanation. It is truly peculiar. So God's intention, as we saw uh, two nights ago, was that Israel would be such a holy nation that in their demeanor, their actions, their knowledge, other nations would be captivated as they traveled through their Jewish villages and cities. He tells them in Leviticus 20, verses 24 and 26, he says this, and again I'll read that scripture, Ye shall inherit their land, and I will give it unto you to possess it, a land that floweth with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, which have separated you from all the other people. And ye shall be holy unto me, for I am the Lord. I am holy, and I have severed you from all other people, that ye should be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy. The beauty of that culture was designed by God to cause the sojourners that would travel through their area to ask questions. Where did these people come from? What are they like? How did they become like this? He wanted them to be a a vivid billboard to any traveler that there's something different here. There's something different here. And he captures that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Let me just read that again as God records his plan to use holiness as an evangelistic tool in the Old Testament. He says, Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. That's what God wants people in this community to say about you. That's what he wanted them to say about Israel back in the Old Testament. Going on. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh to them, so close to them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes, guidelines, rules, whatever you want to call them, and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day? You know, God designed Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation so that when Israel was observed, people would say something is really different here. They're set apart. They're not like us. What makes them tick? When Israel chose to be like the nations around them, they lost their mission. That's what's so sad as it took place 
there in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, many years later, uh, spoke to Israel about the loss of their beauty of holiness. Ezekiel's cry echoes down to us today as well. And he says in Ezekiel 22, verse 26, Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. It was the leaders of Israel that had violated. And so they weren't the examples to the people that they were supposed to be. He goes on, They have put no difference between the holy and profane. If you're a leader at a church or you're a leader in your home, you know that that is one of the, the places where it's really a struggle to define what's holy and what's profane to your children. <laughs> you know, that chocolate candy is profane, the broccoli is holy. <laughs> uh, whatever, you're trying to convince them. Uh, maybe it's more important than that particular illustration, but there, there's a sense in which we're constantly trying to do that. Well, they weren't doing it anymore. The priests weren't defining what was the difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the clean and the unclean. They've hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. The most distressing enigma of Israel's condition was that God began to be seen as common. The God of Israel didn't stand different than the other gods. They couldn't see any difference. God was profaned because they failed to define the difference between what was profane and what was holy. The God of Israel was no longer any different. He was not seen as distinctively holy. Those who observed Israel were unable to see the beauty of the Lord. His holiness had no trickle-down effect. The people were not unusual. Israel's God was perceived to be like all the other gods. The same happens to be true in so much of what is called Christianity today. Much of what is called Christianity today is an obscene representation of a holy God. If those who claim to have Jesus living within them live no differently than those who make no such claim, then the character of God has been grossly distorted because He walks in your shoes. His reputation has been violated. Jesus calls us as his followers to be a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that we should show forth the beauties, the excellencies of him that's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul raises the question in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. You are the walking shoes of the Lord Jesus Christ. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean things and I will receive you. I will be a father unto you. You will be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Much of our contemporary missionary movement has dismissed this high impact of holiness and call it and calls it legalism. Now I know there's a lot of legalism around. I'm not here to say there isn't any, but when when we take 
what is holy and call it legalism, we degenerate the God who is holy. They don't see his holiness. Therefore, like Israel, among the heathen nations, Christianity today has minimal effect on so many people groups across the world. Unfortunately, significant leaders like uh, Gandhi and Muhammad marveled at the ethic of Christ. When they read, they studied the ethic of Christ to, be, to the extent that they seriously considered Christianity at one point, but turned away from it when they observed those who claimed to be its adherents. Isn't that sad? It failed to make a difference between the profane and the holy. Frederick Nietzsche, the, um, the apostate son of a Lutheran pastor, said this, and I quote, If these Christians want me to believe in their God, they will have to sing me better songs. They will have to look more like people that have been saved. They'll have to wear on their countenance the joy of the Beatitudes. I can only believe in a God who dances. <coughs> Excuse me. While we do not want to get our doctrine from Nietzsche by any means, it's true that the more holy a person is, the more joyful they are as well. Something was missing as this apostate son of a Lutheran preacher was looking at the congregation of his father. Solemnity and somberness have their appropriate place, but they should never veil the vibrant joy of a believer in holiness. Bob Sorgan, in his book, The Unveiled at Last, addresses that problem quite astutely when he writes, and I quote again, Complicating the issue even more is how Muslims view Christianity. Muslims believe that we worship three gods, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Mother, and that this threesome came to be when God came down to earth, saw Mary, lusted after her, and had sex with her. And then he adds, no wonder they believe Christianity is simply out to lunch. He goes on, this concept of an immoral religion is confirmed in Muslims' mind when they turn on the television and watch Christian programs, in quotes. They assume that Dallas and Dynasty are Christian TV programs and that they exemplify Christianity. What is the overall effect? In considering the claims of Christ, most Muslims start at a negative 15 rather than zero. It's interesting also that the end of his life, Martin Luther lamented something that was that's really uh, revealing. He said this, talking about his own people, those who had left the Catholic Church and become a part of the Lutheran uh, theology and, and understanding. And he's talking about his own people toward the end of his life. He said this, and I quote, If we look aright at what people now do who reckon themselves as evangelicals, that's talking about the Lutherans, and, and know how to talk much about Christ, there is nothing behind it. Most of them deceive themselves. The number of those who began with us and had pleasure in our teaching was ten times greater. Now, not a tenth part of them remain steadfast. They learn indeed to speak words as a parrot repeats what people say, but their hearts do not experience them. They remain just as they are. They neither taste nor feel how true and faithful God is. They boast much of the gospel, and at first they seek it earnestly, yet afterwards nothing remains. For they do what they like, follow their lusts, become worse than they were before, 
and are, as much, and are much more undisciplined and presumptuous than other people. Peasants, citizens, and nobles are all more covetous and undisciplined than they were under the papacy. Now we are almost utterly heathen with the name Christian. That's the end of quote. What a disappointment it must have been to pour your whole life into trying to change a theological and, and practical expression and get to the end of the life and say they're worse off now than they were under the papacy. That's because holiness was not important. Their theology was important. They wanted to change their theology. They did change their theology. And I think God used Martin Luther to wrestle with a, a, a poor theology. But holiness was not a part of their teaching. And he stands at the end of his life regretting what had taken place. I think that sorrowful lament still rings true five centuries later. When faith is the only measure of righteousness, holiness becomes optional. The beauty of holiness does not primarily come from contrasting the world, like we mentioned before, but from imitating Christ. The imitation of Christ is what places all believers in a cross-cultural setting. Imitating Christ is what separates the believer from every other cultural group. There's no geographical place on the globe where Christians are not in a cross-cultural setting. We are strangers and pilgrims with an entirely different value system from all others due to our rebirth in the kingdom of God. There's a beautiful song captures the passion of the heart um, written by Albert Orsborn, and he penned it this way, and let's sing it together. <clears throat> Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wonderful passion and purity. Oh, the spirit divine, all my nature refine. Till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to observe the, the splendor of holiness. It's brilliantly obvious. Holiness is so obvious and convicting that Peter tells us that even in silence, a wife's chaste, beautiful conversation, lifestyle, can win the heart of her husband, even in silence. That's how beautiful it is. Bitterness, pride, immorality, and apathy are among the vices that dull our human ability to perceive that beauty. It's obscured by the fleshly heart. Allow me to, to um, contrast the beauty of holiness as compared to the affliction of unholiness for just a little bit before we take a, um, a, a break here. The couple who follow God's design for marriage grow in oneness and faithfulness which sweetens and strengthens their relationship as the years pass by while the unholy traumatize 
their spouse, their children, their parents, their friends as they engage in adulterous relationships, divorce, remarriage, multiple marriages leave in their wake a stream of broken, hurting people where ugly confrontations are common. Where holiness reigns, children learn respect, domestic skills, dependability, truthfulness, and other desirable virtues in an atmosphere of love and discipline. The blessings that adult children give parents by honoring their teaching brings joy which swells their hearts with grace. The beauty is copious. They, the, these children reach to their siblings with compassion to invest in their spiritual well-being by communicating how they value them. There's beauty all around when there's love at home, right? The song says, but where holiness has been lost, children become peer-dependent, engage in activities that grieve their parents, they become independent and estranged from their families. The inner agony of fathers and mothers is heartrending as they grieve when reflecting with close friends on the lifestyle their offspring have chosen. It's not pretty. In the beauty of holiness, young people come to their wedding day as virgins with a much higher level of marital and sexual delight and anticipation. Their radiance and innocence brings a trust into their oneness that has long been lost by young people who have compromised their purity. According to the authors of the book Girls Uncovered, over 80% of American girls ages 20 to 21 have lost their virginity. This dismal situation accounts for the bitterness, guilt, loss of delight that defiles their marriage beds and contributes to the infidelity of half of American marriages. This dilemma is far from beautiful. As a side note, it's really painful for me to see young people abandon their conservative Anabaptist heritage of faithfulness in marriage to join evangelical groups where the ratio of marital faithfulness is worse in some situations than the, those who claim no religion. Confidence that their own children will be faithful in the next generation really has no statistical basis. The redeemed have engaging friendliness that brightens the doorways of their churches and homes to those who are seeking. Gracious hospitality highlighted the beauty of Christ living within believers when a recent guest testified uh, as they came one morning and said, and I quote, this is the friendliest church we've ever attended. A visitor came to sit beside one couple who had invited him to church one Sunday. As he sat down, he commented, It's a good thing you invited me over for lunch today because I've had three invitations since I got to the front door of your church this morning. In a culture that's characterized by keys and locks, there is a beauty in the knowledge that you're welcome to these godly homes at any time. There is no strangers here. Beautiful. When a father business leader or pastor takes the smallest portion, sits in the most uncomfortable seat, or waits till the last in order to serve those who are under his care, we see the beauty of holiness. The leader understands that every blessing he's given becomes a means of blessing others. It's truly marvelous. This in stark contrast to the haughty dog-eat-dog mentality found in the commercialism of the world, where getting to the top involves climbing over the backs of competitors, employees, staff, and consumers. The me-first mentality is truly unattractive. In an increasingly 
socialistic society where the entitlement mentality has resorted to the welfare check to compensate for slothfulness, the beauty of a work ethic that honors the sweat of the brow is refreshing. Employees who serve from the heart to make their CEO or foreman or manager successful are a special tribute to the blessing or the beauty of holiness. They will go the extra mile without being asked. The godly contractor who takes loss charitably and refuses to haul their offenders to court are a rare but beautiful breed. These men go beyond the call of duty to satisfy their customers at personal loss in order to exemplify the Spirit of Christ is truly beautiful. Having a tradition of singing, we have provided rich opportunities to develop four-part a cappella harmony. It's been my privilege over the years to be a part of churches where singing was, was enjoyed, enthusiastically engaged in. While a cappella singing may not be any more holy than other forms of harmonious Christian music, it's been my observation that in a significant numbers of cases, uh, both in mission settings in, in Minnesota as well as in other parts of the world, it was the spirited singing that drew people back to our conservative churches time after time, more so than even the preaching sometimes. They came because of that spirit of singing and joy that was there. There was no loud accompaniment by just a talented few, but rather rich blending of passionate voices that caused one visitor to tell me one Sunday after he had sat beside us in, in church there in, in um, uh, Chiang Mai, he said, the next time I hear music like that, I know I'll have angels standing beside me. <laughs> Evangelicalism has succumbed to the moral chaos of Western culture's iniquity and immodesty to such a degree that men have to constantly guard their eyes while even attending the churches of America. Several times we have attended the commencement exercise of the most conservative um, school for missionary children in Chiang Mai, and the immodesty of these missionary children is only surpassed by the ladies of the red light district. It's just incredible. The, 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 uh, the spirit of what's going on there, and it just grieves me because Buddhist people perceive this as Christian. But what a contrast when we are in the company of godly young ladies like you have here in your congregation, where elegant, tasteful, modest clothing points the observer's eyes toward the radiance and purity of their Christ-reflecting countenance. I wonder, is it possible that the proliferation of Amish novels that fill significant sections of our bookstores in America today points to some kind of a nostalgic reflection on the days when beauty involved modesty? I don't know. Complete strangers have come up to us uh, and to our women in, in the, our ministry that have made comments about how beautiful they were and they look at themselves and say, we've just got our everyday dresses on. You know, they weren't dressed up whatsoever. When disaster hits a family in the circles of those who aspire to live holy lives, the beauty of the barn-raising mentality actively emerges as people give sacrificially get that family back on their feet again. This is in contrast to the lonely vigils of the majority of Western population who bicker with their insurance companies to get whatever they can and feel abandoned by their supposed friends. 
then we're going to um, stop there for right now. And um, uh, I'd just like to finish after our, our time of worship here and singing with uh, some of the examples that have just underscored in my heart and mind that what you and I, by God's special grace, is not that we have earned this in any way, but a gift that's been handed to us that we can can reflect and share with the world around is so powerful, so necessary in the world that we're in today. So we'll talk about that a little bit more later. I'll turn the time back over to Brother Laverne.